Our scripture today is Psalm 133, a song of sense of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So my great-grandfather is crouched on the floor of the crawl space, uh, kind of hovering over this hole that he's dug in the hard clay, holding uh, a glass beaker in one hand when he hears a voice behind him that says, maybe just start with half. It's my great-grandmother advising him that he should be a little more cautious than he was being at the moment. So she'd been bothering him for years to dig out that old crawl space and give us a proper basement but he had gone down and scraped in the clay enough times that he'd gotten discouraged and was like, I, there's no way this is gonna happen. Until he was at the library and saw a chemistry textbook. So he took it home and he read up on how different chemicals interact with one another, went to the pharmacy and to the uh, farm supply store and came back, went to the barn, mixed up the chemicals, took them down into the crawl space where he had, had dug this hole and was about to pour them in when great grandma advised him to exercise caution. So begrudgingly, he used half of the solution, took an old vacuum cleaner cord that he cut the ends off and stripped it bare, shoved it down in the hole, and retreated to the steps where he plugged it in. This is my favorite story to hear anytime the Wiesman family gets together. <laughs> I love this story. The way it's told is that the neighbors at the next farm overheard the explosion. <laughs> the house shifted about half an inch on its foundation. My great-grandfather had no trouble at all digging out the hard clay. And a few years later, they sold the house complete with a full basement. We tell that story every single time the family gets together because you can, you can act it out, you can see it, you can imagine what that was like, and because it, it cements us, it draws us together as a family, it reminds us of the, kind of the narrative that we are part of, what it means to be part of this family, what it means to be a Wiestman with a little elbow grease, hard work, and a library card, <laughs> you can solve anything. That's what it means to be in my family. I'm sure you have those same stories that you share whenever your family's together. Maybe you just shared some of them at Christmas. If, if you're like my wife's family, it's about uh, the distant relative who led a horse into the kitchen and it fell through the floorboards and got stuck and nobody could get it out. <laughs> That's the family I married into. If it's... <laughs> Others of you have other stories, right? The stories of fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers who've uh, fought in the wars, stories of ancestors who came over on the Mayflower or came from another country to the States looking for a better life. Some of you, that's your story of last year. These are the stories you tell to say like, hey, this is, this is our family. This is who we are. Because family, family is built on meals and memories. It's built on gathering together and telling the stories. So are churches. 
And not, that's not just preacherly hyperbole. Like, there's science behind this. The Wall Street Journal ran an article a couple of months ago that said kids, like teenagers and young children who can recount family histories of relatives they've never met correspond to less social anxiety, better test scores in school, overall better stability and better outcomes. There's something about hearing the stories that cements us into a narrative, into a tradition, into a, into a broader storyline that gives us a sense of identity and place and unity with the family. But that's something the Christian church has always known. God has given to us in our worship certain practices that remind us of the story that we all belong to, the story that shapes our lives, the story that pulls us outside of ourselves and pushes us into community with others such as yourself, stories that unify us, Unity in the church is built on meals and memories. If you haven't turned to Psalm 133, go ahead and turn there. We've been in this uh, sermon series called Transformation. After today, we'll be halfway through it. We're walking through our services, kind of looking at each part of it, each element of it, and, and saying, like, why do we do that? Why do we do that the way that we do that? Why do we do what we do when we get together and worship? And part of the reason we're asking this question is that there's, there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, one of it is some of you are less familiar with even what we do at Faith or what is done in a church like ours, so we want to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and take a look at what we're doing together. Uh, others of you are on the younger side, and so you've slept through plenty of these services but haven't yet paid attention through so, too many of them, so we want to make sure we explain what we're doing. But mainly, we're asking this question because we believe that what we do regularly habitually, week after week, works back on us and shapes us into a certain kind of worshiper, a certain kind of church, a certain kind of community or family. So Psalm 133, it's uh, on page 615 of the Black Bible under the seat in front of you, or if you've got the, if you download the Faith Church app, just pull it up and hit scripture, and it'll be right there, ready for you to go. Uh, we're looking at Psalm 133 uh, as we look at different psalms, talking about different parts of our liturgy, our services, and what we do. So take a look at Psalm 133, verse 1. We'll start at the very beginning. Behold, David writes... David, one of the great poets of the Old Testament, the, the book of Psalms is full of songs that he has written, uh, probably the most famous king, if you've heard of any of the Old Testament kings, maybe you've heard of King David. David writes, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Some commentators think he probably wrote this before his sons all went to war with each other. Or maybe he wrote it after, reflecting on what it was like before his sons all went to war with each other. We're not really, we, we, there's no way for us to know, but he says, look how good it is, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And I wish we had words in English that carry the same kind of emotional weight that these words do in Hebrew, good and pleasant. Good is this word that, that means everything is arranged or arrayed exa exactly as it's supposed to be for the purpose for which it's intended. Uh, good, it's the word that uh, was used at the very beginning of creation when God made everything and before it had fallen, he looked at it and said, it's good, it's good, it's very good. How good it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's a word saying that's the way it's supposed to be. 
I have four younger brothers. This was not our family life verse. Because we weren't and never were, you know, that kind of unity. But how good it would have been if we could have. How right it would have been. Good is this sense of there's nothing I need to fix. There's nothing I need to manage. There's nothing I need to manipulate or rearrange. There's nothing I need to repair. There's nothing I even need to pay attention to because everything is the way it's supposed to be. It's like you come home from work and your, your husband has been there already. He's cleaned up the house. He's put dinner on the table. He's cleaned the children even. Their homework's done. You're like, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is good. I thank you for the amen. This is good. And it's pleasant. And pleasant is kind of a tepid word in English. It's uh, meh, but what it means here, it's more emotionally laden in Hebrew. Pleasant, this is the, the word for like beautiful, attractive. It has to do with how the situation appeals to me, kind of on a gut level. So how good it is and how good it feels when brothers dwell in unity, David writes. And unity is another interesting word. In Hebrew, it's just the word together. How good it is and how good it feels when brothers dwell together. But it has more to do than just proximity of, of being next to each other. It's kind of like our English word gathering. You know, gathering is a verb, like we are gathering. And then it became a noun, we are a gathering. And the implication is that we're more than just a group of people in the room who gather together, but we are together for some sort of purpose. Uh, the same thing happened with this word here in Hebrew. It went from uh, meaning together to meaning community to meaning unity of one mind. David writes how good it is, how good it feels on a gut level when, when brothers dwell in unity. Now, every time we read a psalm, it's important to read the psalm for what it says, but also read the psalm for how it was used by Israel and eventually by the early church. Uh, this Psalm, 133, is one of 15 psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascents, or uh, the Psalms of Degrees, or the Psalms of Walking Upstairs, of Ascending. And they were a, a group of psalms, a little short little songbook, these 15 psalms, they're, they're highly repetitive, they're uh, easy to sing, that, that were used by pilgrims, uh, by people of, of Israel who were journeying together toward Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. So they're ascending towards Jerusalem, singing these psalms together. The priests would also use these psalms as they ascended the 15 steps up into the temple, one psalm per step. Uh, but think of, think of this caravan of Jewish people heading up annually to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, this is not like when we drive home for Christmas and we seal ourselves into our, uh, our weatherproof boxes uh, and we drive them and we, we don't have to interact with anyone unless we choose to, right? Or if our vehicle is maybe not as nice as we thought it was and it betrays us on the way, and then we have to interact with people to fix it for us. Uh, otherwise, like, we're sealed off, we can go. That's not the way it worked 
as they're going up to Jerusalem, uh, people from all different walks of life, landowners, slaves, indentured servants, coopers, blacksmiths, vintners, whatever you call people who make olive oil, like they all would come together on the way, camping together, watching out for one another, singing these songs together as they marched day after day toward Jerusalem for the sole purpose of worship. This psalm and the psalms that precede it and the one right after are all part of this unifying songbook, this unifying ritual, uh, the sharing of both meals and memories and a sense of mission that Israel uh, undertook together as they moved towards Jerusalem for Passover. And in the early church, when the early church uh, first began singing together, their songbook was the Psalms. These were the hymns that they sang, and Psalm 133 was one of them, and it quickly uh, kind of started to carry more weight in the, in the worship than just the words themselves would indicate. This is not just a song about brothers and sisters not fighting. It's not just a song about the beauty of of familial unity. It quickly came, brothers and sisters, brothers here quickly came to be understood as the family, and then the family of God, and then the church. How good it is and how good it feels when the church, when the family of God, the household of God, the people of God dwell together in unity. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's the beautiful way that God has called us to, how good it is and how good it feels. And I imagine half of you uh, are thinking something like, I used to belong to a church like that, you know, that felt unified. Maybe the church you grew up in or the church you served in for a long time before circumstances changed and you ended up here or wherever you're regularly worshiping. You're like, I used to have a church like that. Others of you, maybe the other half of you, are thinking, yeah, faith used to be like that. Man, we used to have that sense of unity. And the third half of you is going, math's not my strong suit, is going, yeah, that is faith for me. I've been here, and I've invested here. That is faith for me. I feel like we are unified. Now, unity doesn't just happen by accident. We don't drift into it. Unity is built. It's built on meals and memories. I've told you all in the past some of my own family and extended family is kind of conflict and things that are going on there. Sometimes I wonder if we could just get around the table again at my grandparents' house, share a meal and tell the stories Maybe there'd be a window for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for unity to come back. Well, what's true of our families is true of the family of families that makes up the church. The church also is, the church's unity is also built on meals and memories. And God has given to us in our worship a 
ritual meal and a ritual memory that we repeat regularly as a family that reminds us of the story the story that we all, from our variety of backgrounds and education levels and socioeconomic levels and political parties and ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds, the, the one story that unites all of us, even within the diversity of who we are as we come together. He's given us a meal and a memory. Let's start with the meal. I'm talking about communion. You know, communion, this uh, time that we get together as a church and uh, an act in, in this kind of all five senses sort of way, you know, have you noticed that uh, communion, it, it involves taste, touch, sight, hearing, whichever one I forgot, sound, uh, it involves all of our senses in a way that sort of makes, makes the story stick, I think. You know how um, melody helps you remember words? Right, you can name all nine planets because, or eight, or however many there are now, because of the song that you learned in elementary school. You, some of you, still know the capitals of South American countries because you learned the Caracas, Venezuela rap, or maybe that's just me. Um, you can name all the presidents because you can name them in order, all their states and their capitals. Right, you set the words to music, and you can go through all of the prepositions because it sticks with the melody. Well. Physic, the physicality of communion, the bread and the cup, do the same thing. They remind us, they involve our other senses in a way that makes the story stick. So when we take communion here, which we do about monthly, uh, when we take communion, we come up front with the bread uh, that's baked by these little wafers that have been cut out, that have been baked by somebody within our congregation. We come uh, with the juice which we did not make, but we hand-poured into all those little cups. <laughs> if we made it ourselves, it would just turn into wine. So <laughs> it's the way grape juice works. Uh, so we come up with, the, with the, the bread and the juice, the bread that, that we break that symbolizes the giving of Christ's body for us, the, the juice which we pour into the cups that symbolizes the pouring out of his blood for us, the new covenant he made with us in his body and in his blood. And we do that because Jesus told us to. It's, it's in part a memorial, right? It's a Thanksgiving feast. Some of you grew up in traditions that call communion the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. It's the Thanksgiving meal where we look back to what Jesus has done for us, but we do more than just look back in communion. We look back to the Last Supper, but through the Last Supper to the Passover meal that Jesus himself transformed into the Last Supper, and we look forward to the coming meal. Jesus himself told us in Matthew that his last supper was not his last. It's his second to last supper. He said, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you new in the kingdom of God. Every time we get together around the communion table, uh, past, present, and future are, are centered in one place setting. What Jesus has done for us in the past, what he's continuing to do for us uh, in the present and in a, the sense of sort of a sanctified letdown, what, what we can anticipate in the future, the final feast at the end of all days when we feast with Jesus forever. 
In communion, we picture the entirety of the story of the God who has continually moved towards us to rescue us and will one day rescue us forever. But there's more. Because it's a table, it's a meal, it's the, in a sense, the consecration of all of the regular stuff you have at a meal. Uh, food, drink, bread, wine, juice, whatever it is. These are staples of the Mediterranean diet. This is, this is a regular meal and yet lifted uh, to new heights when it's suffused with this, uh, this meaning, but it's also a meal. And I'm sure most of you have experienced one or two or maybe more of those meals where you're sitting around the table with people that you don't necessarily get along with at the moment. And the meal is stone cold. And I don't mean the food. There's nothing quite like sitting around a table to highlight the fact that we don't all get along. Right? I mean, we just came back from Christmas, so, right? There's nothing like sitting around that table to highlight for us the fact that our natural bent is to be at war with one another. And we need something to move us, to push us, to impel us towards forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what a family meal does. Highlights for us the opportunities to look around the room and say, I've offended, or I've been offended. Because remember who else is at the table? It's not just us. And we don't have a literal table when we do communion. We sort of have to sit here facing front with our ears burning, wondering if that person we offended back there is looking at us, thinking about us at that moment that we're all reflecting on our sins and how we've damaged the body of Christ, or maybe, again, that's just me. But um, we're not in a actual, you know, around an actual table, but there's one person at the table that we often forget, and that's God himself, who has invited us to this table. And remember what our relationship with God used to be like. War is one of the words that's used for it. Enmity, animosity, strife, jealousy. The God that we had rebelled against is inviting us to the table from the posture of forgiveness and reconciliation. And we sit around the table with him looking at one another and pausing and reflecting, who in this body have I offended? Who in this body has hurt me that I need to go reach out to? A few years back, somebody made an appointment with me, asked to come in to my office and speak with me, and I said, sure, fine. I assumed it would be about some of the ministry we were doing together. And they came in and sat down on my couch, closed the door, and, the, and said, I'm here because I need to tell you how you hurt me. And I thought, that's not how I thought this meeting was going to go. <laughs> but they then proceeded to explain back to me something that I had said somewhat offhand. Uh, there was probably a little more passive aggressiveness in it than there should have been, because there shouldn't have been any, and there was some, and I'm really good at that, and I'm working on it. But there was some of that kind of like, I had implied through a statement that this person cared less about ministry to a difficult person than I, the pastor, did. Uh, and therefore, we needed to go with my wisdom on this situation. That took a lot of guts. 
especially when it's easier to just be quiet and pray that a new job comes along that moves you somewhere else. Or that you get a flyer in the mail from one of the other good churches that's in the Indianapolis area. Right? Unity is hard because it's so easy for us to just say, I don't like the people at that table. I'll go find a new table. I'll go to another church, to another fellowship. And there are, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of good reasons to leave a church. But unresolved conflict is not one of them. Not when God has called the body of Christ, his family, believers, brothers and sisters who, invited, who have been invited together to the table as enemies, where we all are freely given of the same grace, of the same elements. Rich or poor, you don't get better bread when you're rich. You don't get better grape juice when you're more spiritual. We all get the same thing. We're all even at the table before God and with one another. None of us can say to the other, you hurt me and I'll never forgive you. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. I will not forgive you. Nor do any of us ever have to be scared to, to go to another person and admit what we have done wrong to them because we've all been forgiven. We're all in the same boat at the same table. So unresolved conflict, when we come to the table together, whether I'm sitting in the front of the room and the other person's sitting in the back of the room or whoever you're fighting with is over there and you can't even see them, it doesn't matter. If you come to the table together, you're both saying to, the, to each other, you can call me on this because we're both sinners saved by God's grace invited to this table. One theologian calls communion the training wheels for forgiveness and reconciliation. I mean, in other words, we're so bad at seeing when it needs to happen in regular life that we get together. Some churches do it weekly, some churches do it monthly, some do it quarterly or annually, but we at least get together regularly to highlight the fact for one another that we need to seek and offer forgiveness and reconciliation. It's like training wheels. We can't do it on our own, so we've got communion. We've got a shared meal to draw us back together, to unite us together again. One God, one hope, one faith, one table, and one baptism. If communion is one of the sort of embodied ways that we regularly remind each other of uh, the, the story that we're all part of, baptism does the same thing in just a slightly different way. Uh, Communion and baptism, by the way, another theologian calls them live illustrations. He says it's as if the, the liturgy we've been enacting, the story we've been telling, some, suddenly comes uh, with, a, with a, like a living illustration. Here's what it looks like in communion and in baptism. If you've never seen, I mean, imagine you've never seen a baptism before. It's a little weird, right? We fill a giant tank with water or go out to a river or a pond, or we have in some churches uh, a baptismal font that looks like a giant bird bath. And someone comes up or a couple of people come up and they're asked a couple of questions and then they recite what sounds like uh, a creed or an incantation of sorts and then they're submerged, fully clothed in the water while their family cries and everybody claps, <laughs> right? It's, it sounds like a practical joke. Like, how'd you convince these people to, to go? Anyway, it's weird if you've never seen it before, but that's because the, the symbol, the thing that it symbolizes is a little otherworldly. Baptism, and part of the reason we do baptism here the way we do it, emphasizing the actual submerging of people underwater, is because baptism symbolizes the death and the burial 
and the resurrection of Jesus. You may not be able to hear it when we gather around the mezzanine and we've got the, the tank down there and, and someone's in it. At this point, because we're about to get wet, we hand the microphone back, but uh, me or, or Pastor Jeff or Pastor Tom or Pastor Nathan, whoever's doing the, the baptizing, uh, will usually say something along the lines of, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Walk now in newness of life. Because baptism symbolizes our union with Christ's death and resurrection, our identity as children of God, walking in a new kind of humanity that we couldn't have without God. And it symbolizes all that for the person there, and of course for all of you who have been baptized and remember your own baptism, you remember the shock of the water and how it wasn't as warm as you thought it was going to be and you remember that sense of being submerged and then lifted out of it. Maybe you remember being told, walk in newness of life. It brings back for us that memory of, I've done this too. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But there's a reason we don't do baptisms just off with a family or one person at a time. Or There's a reason we do it together, is what I'm saying, in between services where both first hour and second hour can gather together and watch. When a person goes under the water, you can think of it as like the, the adoption ceremony of the church. When the person goes under the water and comes back out, they're saying by their actions, maybe not audibly, but we try to make sure everybody that we baptize here understands this, they are saying, I belong to you. I'm part of this family now, the household of God, Paul calls it. I, I belong to you and I belong here. And all of us watching are not just passive observers. We're active participants. Our presence there is saying to the person getting baptized, you belong to us. You belong here. We're responsible for you now. You're accountable to us now. Just like when we gather at the table, when we witness someone's baptism, we are saying and they are, they are giving consent that we can now call them on what we see. We can now be in that person's life. We can now be part of their ongoing growth in Christ. Baptism is this repeated ritual that reminds us, those of us who have been baptized, those of us who are watching the baptism, it reminds us, this is a family. And I'm part of it. Not a family in the sort of like, um, I'll keep it like my blockbuster rewards card until it's not worth anything anymore, but in the family as in like that you don't get to choose your family kind of way. Like you're part of this family forever. You're part of this family, this local group. Whether you want to continue being part of us or not, we're responsible for you now. All of us, I'm not saying me or pastoral staff or elders, all of us, we are family now. That means we get to, we get to celebrate like family, we get to eat together like family, we get to play together like family, we get to fight like family, we get to punch each other out like 
family, some families. We get to call each other on the stuff that we see like family. We get to come back together every week and forgive one another and be reconciled to one another like family. That's what we are now. Communion and baptism are the meal and the memory that unite the church into a body, into one. Unity is built on shared meals and shared memories. And every time we get together, we tell that story, we act that story out again, we live that story out with one another to remind us where we belong, who we belong to, and what it means to be part of this family. But there's more. Because unity doesn't just exist for unity's sake. It's not, it's not there just as an end in itself. Unity within the family of God, within the body, does something. Turn back to Psalm 133. David's written, Behold how good it, and pleasant, how good it is and how good it feels when, when brothers, when the family of God, when the church dwells together in unity, a unity within the community. He says it, that, that dwelling together in unity, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, this is one of those verses where maybe we're culturally removed enough that it just sounds a little weird, like who pours oil on their heads? Sounds greasy. One commentator was talking about this, and besides the sort of priestly implications of anointing the head with oil, like Aaron is the first and greatest priest in the line of priests in Israel, and part of the ritual was anointing with oil. There are other places, like Psalm 23, he anoints my head with oil, and my cup runs over. It's, it's this picture of blessing, but some of the, the commentators remind us, like they're, in a culture that didn't take baths, unless you were rich, uh, who didn't really have soap per se, except for animal fats and salts that you would rub on your pots and pans to kind of clean them off, uh, for a culture that didn't wash themselves regularly, to, to take some oil and kind of rub it in your hair and in your beard was just one of the best things that you could possibly do. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong, <laughs> or just because it's odd for us, but this is a, a picture of blessing to say we have so much so much precious oil, so much of this limited supply of a precious thing that is evidence of God's blessing on us. We have so much of it that we can, we can be extravagant with this blessing. We can pour it over our heads, let it run down our faces, let it soak our clothing. We have so much of this beautiful smelling anointing oil that just fills the room with its pleasant aroma. We just, we can't even exhaust it. Unity in the family of God is like a blessing from God, notice how it says it keeps running down, running down, coming down. It's like a blessing from God that you can never exhaust. The benefit and the blessing of unity in the family. But he uses other analogies too. Verse 3, uh, it, that dwelling together in unity, is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. And I had to pull out a map this week to see where those mountains are. Hermon, tall, tallest, uh, tallest mountain in the rural north. Zion, a lot shorter, more of a hill than a mountain in the urban south. For dew, uh, the sort of proverbial dew that kept Mount Hermon green all year round, even in the hot summer, for dew from Hermon to fall on Zion would be a miracle. 
so too, one theologian wrote, so too is the miracle of the gospel of God bringing unity among uh, the vast diversity that is us gathered in a room from different cultural backgrounds, political backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, religious backgrounds. Yeah, we just, we're all so different, and yet we're unified around one story that draws us together and sends us out. The unity of the family of God is so precious, so miraculous, such a gift from God coming down from him that verse three ends saying, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There God has commanded the blessing. There doesn't mean the mountain of Zion or the, or the mountain of Hermon or Aaron's beard. Uh, it means where brothers, where sisters, where the family of God is dwelling together in unity. There, God has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And another translation, you know, reading other translations kind of helps you get at what might be behind what the psalmist is saying. Uh, another translation, the New English translation, renders it this way. Uh, Indeed, that is where, where brothers and sisters dwell in unity, that is where the Lord has decreed a blessing will be available. Eternal life. In other words, there's, there's something about the unity of the family of God among the diversity of all of our different backgrounds. There's something about the unity of the family of God that makes the gospel, the story that brings us together, that makes it believable. When you can look at a room of believers or the church around the world and say, there's no way these people would be united if it weren't for something bigger than all of them. The, the unity of the family of God makes the gospel plausible. It makes it believable. It makes it tangible, something you can look at, you can feel, you can experience if you otherwise have a hard time believing that this story is true. There's something about us being together, being unified, that tells the world around us that we are here for something other than ourselves and what we want and what we're looking for. We're here because of a bigger story. Now, of course, there's some, some questions that come to mind then that I think we need to ask ourselves as we think about this unity. What about you? What about us? <laughs> what about me? And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is if we are willing to fight like family for unity within the family. Right? Are we willing to fight like family for the unity or would we rather do what most families do and just move somewhere else and only see each other at Christmas and Easter? Because I I'm totally aware it is a whole lot more fun to just sort of let your animosity simmer on a low burn while watching from another church or from somewhere else. Are we willing, are we, each of us in this room, willing to fight for unity, to come to the communion table, 
to come to a baptism celebration and say again, this is family. And to consider again, how have I harmed the body? And to seek and offer forgiveness and reconciliation from one another. Am I willing? Second question is, am I holding on to some sort of disunity or discord? Am I holding on to some animosity that is making the gospel less believable by people around me? Am I holding on to something that somebody did to me, something that somebody said to me, some way that somebody slighted me, whether they're here or they've moved on or whether you moved on from wherever they are, are you holding on to some sort of disunity that somebody outside of the church, somebody who doesn't believe, doesn't understand, would look at and say, that's how Christians get along? Are we holding on to discord and disunity because it's a little more delicious, but it destroys the, the tangibility, the plausibility of the gospel story? I'm looking forward to next week. Next week we celebrate communion. First Sunday of the month, that's our regular pattern. Uh, we'll celebrate communion together and I'll be up here and others will be up here. I might be doing part of the, the actual giving of the elements, it might be Pastor Jeff, I don't know, but I'm at the table with you. Which means if I've offended you, that's me saying, come talk to me about it. I care more about unity within the body of Christ and within this church body than I do about my own ego or my own, now I'm saying all this, but I'm not sure I actually believe it, but I care more about the unity of this family than I do about myself, or at least I'm going to try, training wheel style. But I need your help. I need you to serve me the bread and the cup and the forgiveness and the reconciliation that I need. And you may be thinking of someone else who's in this room or maybe in first service, and that's why you're not there anymore. You may be thinking of someone else that you will be sitting around the table with next week. A couple weeks after that, the first Sunday in March, we're going to celebrate baptisms. A few of our younger students here have said, I want to be part of this family. They're going to get up, they're going to go through the water and come back out, and they're going to say, maybe not out loud, but through their words, I belong here, I am part of you. And we're going to say, by watching you belong here, we're invested in you. We're responsible for you. And I hope you'll be standing next to me as we celebrate the, the memories, as we share the story of, of Jesus going through death and resurrection for us as these students go through the water and come back out and become part of this family. So unity is built on meals and memories, the regular sharing of time together, stories together, memories together, reminding us of the story that we are all part of. Uh, the, the story of a people who were created by God out of love to be his, his priests and his rulers within his creation, expanding the kingdom of God around the globe, but a people who abdicated and gave up our royal calling to go try to be queens and, queen, queens and kings ourselves trading in his majesty for a paper crown until he came 
and won the allegiance of rebels back to him and gave us a real crown again and, and lifted us out of where we were and brought us together into a family of people uh, trying together, striving together to serve God in his mission now of taking the story of God's reconciliation around the world, Nora and beyond. Surely we can unite around that. Pray with me. God, draw us together. Anytime there's a community larger than one, there's a chance for us to get disunified, discordant, to be in conflict with one another. We're thankful, we're grateful that you have provided for us in our worship opportunities to consider over and over and over again and again how uh, we have been invited to the table, invited to the water, evenly, equally, recipients of grace. Lord, break us and humble us. Draw us back to one another. Unite us together in your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.